Good morning. Thank you uh, for being in worship today. And if, if you're in an overflow room or if you're watching on Facebook Live right now, I want to welcome you um, as well. Let me begin by uh, addressing the elephant in the room. Um, I'm standing on it. Uh, the stage is higher. If you were here last week, you've noticed that we have a stage that is uh, about two feet higher than the one last week. Apparently, someone believed that I needed to appear to have a little more authority. And so they have me now high and lifted up while you are way down there. Um, this is actually for the conference that we're doing at the end of this month. We need a level stage for that conference. And so this construction happened this past week. Uh, today we are beginning a new series called Reconnect. And I'll let you know, I actually planned this series back in May. And in May, I foolishly thought, you know, by August, I think everything's going to be back to normal. I think this whole COVID thing will be behind us and we can talk about reconnecting and, you know, what do I know? Uh, evidently, this is a pandemic that just keeps on giving and, you know, I, I don't know when it's going to be over. The reason that I planned this particular series is I think over these last 20 months, one of the things that has happened is that we have become very disconnected. Uh, or another way to phrase it is when this pandemic began, life went on hold. Everything just... It just seemed to pause. It's like you were with your family and you're watching a movie and someone in your family said, hey, can you pause the movie? I want to go to the kitchen and get some popcorn and get something to drink. And you push pause and then they spent the next 20 months in the kitchen getting popcorn and a drink. It just feels like everything stopped or is on hold or has changed. Everything is different now. I mean, think about several areas of life. One is work. For many people, it changed a lot. They lost their job. For others, they didn't lose their job, but they lost income. And for virtually everyone, life just changed in the work arena. I have spent more hours on video conference calls since this pandemic began than I did in all of the years previous to March of 2020. And just out of curiosity... How many of you in here, you have been on one of those Zoom calls, some business call, and you've had on the button down or maybe a button down and a coat or maybe even a tie and gym shorts and flip-flops? Has anyone, I'll admit it, I've done that. And I thought, I hope they don't ask me to stand up for some reason in the middle of this call. But yeah, everything has either been interrupted or changed or paused in some way when it comes to our work lives. Um, consider as well fitness. When March of 2020 hit, a lot of people had an interruption in what they were doing to exercise. Gyms closed down or they just got out of their routine and they quit. And I've had a lot of people that have said, you know, I, I gained the COVID-20 during COVID-19 and, you know, I've, I've got to lose it now. I've got to do something. I've got to get back to my routine you know, it, it changed or interrupted our fitness schedules. As well, it interrupted sports, not just professional sports that we watch on television, but if you have children who play in rec leagues, it was a major interruption and a major change to how things are done. In the spring of 2020, everything was canceled, and then in the fall, it started opening back up again, but it's, it's different. Things have changed. My daughter played in a tennis tournament this summer, and at the end of the tennis tournament, you know what they do now? At the end of the match, they hit rackets. You don't go and shake hands anymore. You touch rackets. I guess that's how it's going to be from now on. You know, no one shakes hands anymore. My son played baseball. 
For years, for a hundred years in rec league youth baseball, at the end of every game, here's what you do. Both teams line up on the left side of the other team in a single file line, and you go down the line with your hands out, and what do you say? Good game, good game, good game. I mean, every generation has done that. You don't do that anymore. Now you come out of the dugout and you just wave your hats. I, I guess that's how it's going to be. In sports, things have interrupted or changed or paused in some way, as well vacations. You know this, if you had a vacation planned in the spring of 2020, it was probably interrupted. It probably didn't happen. If you had plans to go to the beach, that may or may not have happened. If you had plans to take a cruise or go overseas, that did not happen. And so if you had those plans, you shifted and you said, well, let's just go to the beach instead. And then you fought the world at the crowded beach because everyone had to go there because nobody could go on the cruise or go overseas. It has changed or interrupted or paused our vacations. And as well, and the reason we are talking about this is what this pandemic has done for so many people is that it has paused or interrupted or changed, affected our spiritual lives as well. There is still research to be done on this, but the Barna Group that does all kinds of research on religious life in America came out with a study, and they determined that when the pandemic hit and churches shut down live worship and they went online only, when that happened, one-third of individuals, one-third of church people who formerly were involved in church dropped out completely, meaning they did not watch online They did not stay connected with their small group. They did not start watching another church online. They dropped out completely. Those who were active in February of 2020, in March of 2020, they quit going to church. My guess is many of you in here, you know individuals who were active in church. They were attending worship services. They were in a small group. And since the pandemic, they've not been involved. And my guess is that if you've asked them, if you've gone to them and said, hey, what's up? You know, are you coming back to church? What's going on? You know, you got your vaccine now. Everything's open again. Are you coming back to church? Likely they will say, you know what? We need to do that. We've just gotten busier with other things. You know, we're going to the lake now on Sundays or using as a catch-up day or doing yard work that day. Or we've just filled our life with other things. And even if you've returned, even if you've said, yeah, I'm going to go back and I'm going to get involved in church again, my guess is for many of us in here since this pandemic began, we just feel like our spiritual lives have been at this state of pause. If you're like me, you just feel like I haven't really grown a whole lot. Everything's been so weird and, and every day there's new information and things are changing. And I feel like my faith has struggled to grow. Let me phrase it this way. Put your faith on a scale of 1 to 10. 10 is the kind of faith you only really get when you get to heaven. 1 is very little or no faith at all in Jesus. Where would you say that you are on the where would you say that you are on that scale? My guess is if in February of 2020 you said, "You know, my faith was at a 5." Today you probably say, "Yeah, it's probably at a 5." You said four or three, you'd probably say, yeah, it just hasn't grown much. If it was an eight, then great, but has it grown at all? And so in this series, here's what we're talking about. What can we do? How can we be intentional about reconnecting with our faith journey? How can we be intentional about growing our faith? 
So this morning, we're going to talk about why this is so important. If you've got a Bible with you, turn to Luke chapter 7. Uh, Luke is the third book in the New Testament, so it's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, and we're going to read Luke chapter 7 this morning and a story about why faith is such a big deal. Again, it's Luke chapter 7. Uh, before we dive into the passage, let me take just a minute to set this up. According to Luke, uh, this took place around the Sea of Galilee. That's where Jesus did a lot of his ministry. And so if you're looking at a map of Israel, the Sea of Galilee is to the north. Uh, the Jordan River flows from the mountains down into the Sea of Galilee. And then from there, out of the Sea of Galilee, down to the Dead Sea. Jerusalem is down here to the south and west. Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, is over here to the west. And dotted around the Sea of Galilee at this time were all of these villages. A lot of life took place around the Sea of Galilee. Lots of fishing villages. Um, there was farmland. Just a lot of life happened. And a lot of the ministry of Jesus took place around the Sea of Galilee. In Luke chapter 6... Uh, Luke tells us that Jesus goes up to this mountain to pray. Um, when I was in Israel a couple of years ago, we went to this mountain that likely Jesus climbed. Uh, it says he spent the night praying there. It is this beautiful place to look out over the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, it's a very peaceful place. It takes about 30 minutes to climb. Jesus went there. He spent the night praying. He came down from the mountain there he preached this long sermon to a large group of people. If you've been in church for a while, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. And then from there, he went to this city called Capernaum. That's where this red uh, pen is located, Capernaum. It's located on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. It was a fishing village. It's where Peter was from, who was a fisherman. Um, and Luke tells us that Jesus goes into Capernaum. Here, here is how the story happened. Luke chapter 7, verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all of this to the people who were listening, that was the Sermon on the Mount, He entered Capernaum. There a centurion servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. Okay, stop there for just a moment. These Jewish elders, these religious leaders in Capernaum, Come to Jesus. Jesus, we need your help. There is a Roman centurion, and his servant is dying. Now, Matthew tells us the same story, and he says that this servant was paralyzed and was suffering greatly. What happened, we don't know. Could have been a stroke. Could have been some kind of accident. We're not sure. What we know is this centurion had a servant whom he highly valued, and this servant was on his deathbed. Now, here's the other thing you need to understand. A centurion was a highly um, regarded uh, military official in the Roman army. A Roman legion had 6,000 soldiers. Those 6,000 soldiers were, were divided into 60 centuria, or groups of 100 soldiers. And a centuria, 
a centurion was the commander of that group of 100 soldiers. In this area, this would have been the highest ranking Roman official. These Jewish elders come to Jesus and they say, this centurion has a servant who is sick and Jesus, he needs your help. This was an unusual scene. Everyone around would have been surprised that these Jewish leaders came on behalf of this Roman official. In fact, this whole scene would have been shocking for a couple of reasons. One was this. The Jews and the Romans did not get along. They did not like each other at all. The Jews hated the Romans because the Romans they saw as their oppressors. Uh, The Romans taxed them. The Romans brought religious symbols into Israel that they did not like. The Romans they viewed as heavy-handed. They did not like the Roman emperor who thought that he was a god. They did not like the religious practices of the Romans. They did not like the practices in general of the Romans. They hated, hated, hated the Romans being there. But the feeling was mutual. The Romans really did not like the Jews either. Of all the people that they ruled over, the Jews were the most high-maintenance. They had this strange religion and all of these requests, and they were always bothering the Roman officials to make sure that their religion was honored. When all these other regions where they ruled, they would just worship the Roman gods. They would just adopt whatever it was the Roman gods brought in, and they would add it to their religion. But the Jews, they were just annoying. I mean, they just had all of these requests and all of these asks, and the Romans really did not like the Jews. But in this case, there was a good relationship between this Roman official and the Jews in Capernaum. And the reason was this Roman official, out of his own pocket, constructed the synagogue there in Capernaum. Why he did it, we're not exactly sure. The text says that he loved uh, the nation of Israel. The most likely case is, is that he came into Israel He witnessed the worship of the Jews, and he became a worshiper of the God of Israel. And out of his love for God, he constructed this synagogue in Capernaum. Again, when I was there a couple of years ago, we actually got to see this particular synagogue in Capernaum. Uh, The top half is a newer synagogue, the White Stone. uh, That was constructed around the 3rd or 4th century A.D., but the darker stone on the bottom is the foundation of the synagogue that this centurion had constructed out of his own funds there in Capernaum. By the way, every time in Israel they stick a shovel in the ground, it proves Scripture. And it proves that what Luke said was true. There was a synagogue there in Capernaum. So, these religious leaders come to Jesus on behalf of the centurion because he was a friend to the Jews. It was unusual, it was highly unlikely, but because of their relationship, they come. The first reason it was odd is because the Jews and the the, uh, Romans did not get along. The second reason it was odd is that in this scene, they come to Jesus. The Jews, the Jewish leaders, if you've read Scripture, they were not particularly happy with Jesus. He was drawing a crowd, he was drawing followers, and they weren't happy with Jesus, and the Romans... They didn't think much of just some itinerant preacher traveling around the countryside. And yet here, when they're desperate, who do they come to? Jesus. And so this group, on behalf of the Roman centurion, approaches Jesus and says, we need your help. He needs your help. And the story continues in verse 6. 
He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Again, a very shocking story. This high-ranking, very powerful, very wealthy Roman uh, officer sends word to Jesus and says two things. One, don't come to my house. I'm not worthy of you coming. I am not worthy to have you under my roof. So Jesus, just, just don't bother because it would be beneath you because of how righteous you are to come into my home. I'm just a pagan, Roman, you know, not part of the Jewish people individual. Do not come to my house. I'm not worthy to have you here. And the second thing he says is this. Even though I don't deserve to have you come to my house, you all you have to do is to say the word and my servant will be healed. And in fact, he says this, look, I'm someone who very much understands authority. Any Roman soldier understood authority. Anyone who was in the Roman military understood authority very well. He said, I'm someone who has authority. And if I say to a soldier, go, he doesn't question that command. He goes because that's how it works in the Roman army. If I say to one, come, he comes. He does not question that command because that's how it works. And if I say, do, he does whatever it is I ask him to do because that's how it works in the military, in the Roman army. And he says, Jesus, I recognize that just as I have authority over these soldiers, you have authority over the spiritual realm and over the physical realm. And Jesus, I get it. If you will just say the word, my servant will be healed. No need for you to come. No need for you to enter my house. I'm not worthy. But that's not necessary anyway. Just say it and my servant will be healed. Then go to verse 9. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. So the men leave Jesus, they go back to the house, and the servant has been healed. But here's what I want you to notice. Notice verse 9. Jesus turned to the crowd, he was amazed, and he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in all of Israel. Jesus was amazed at the faith of the centurion, not at the faith of some religious leader in Israel, not at the faith of someone who was a prophet, not at the faith of one of his apostles. He was amazed at the faith of a Roman soldier, someone who was an outcast, someone who was an outsider, someone who if that individual went to the temple in Jerusalem, they would only be able to go so far, only to the court of the Gentiles. They would not be able to go any further because they were not considered part of God's people. And yet Jesus points to this man and says, I am amazed at his faith. Now here's what I want you to do. If you're someone who's okay 
writing in your Bible, here's what I want you to do. Put just a little star right there, a little asterisk right there, and I want you to write beside this passage, Mark 6, 1 through 6. There are only two instances in the entire New Testament where Jesus is amazed at anything, which I'm surprised there's that many. Jesus is the second person in the Trinity. You know, it's hard to amaze the second person in the Trinity, right? I mean, he was there when God created everything. When God flung the stars into space, Jesus was right there, not only watching, but doing it. As God created the world, as He created the oceans and said, stop right here, Jesus was there. As He created man and breathed life into man, Jesus was right there as He made of all of creation. As God did all of that, Jesus was there. So you would think it's pretty hard to amaze the second person of the Trinity, right? He has seen it all. However, we find that right here, he was amazed. It's pretty impressive. I mean, how do you amaze the Son of God? It's like like me writing some PowerPoint program and then going to Bill Gates and going, hey, look what I did. Pretty impressive, isn't it? And he'd say, "I, I invented that program that you wrote that on. In fact, I invented that computer that you typed it on. And and that's not even a good analogy because Bill Gates did not invent the English language or silver that's used to make the chips that operate in the computers. God invented all of that. The second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, invented all of that. So amazing Jesus is fairly difficult to do. Yet here Jesus is amazed at the faith of the centurion. That's the first instance where Jesus is amazed. Turn over to Mark chapter 6. Here's the second instance in the entire New Testament where Jesus is amazed. Here's what we read. Jesus left there. There was the region around the Sea of Galilee. And he went to his hometown. His hometown was Nazareth to the west of the Sea of Galilee. So he leaves the Sea of Galilee. He goes to Nazareth, his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles that he is performing? Okay, stop there for a minute. Jesus goes into Nazareth. He goes into the synagogue, and people hear him preach, and they are wowed. How did he get such wisdom? They began to ask. Where did he learn these truths? How does he know these things that he's teaching? Essentially what they were asking was, where did this guy go to school? What rabbi did he study under? How does he know all of this? And they add to it, what about the miracles? How does he have this power to do these miracles? This guy is different than anyone we've ever heard before. He's different than anyone we've ever seen before. He has this knowledge and wisdom like like no one else that we've ever heard from before. And they're all super, super impressed with Jesus until verse 3. And then someone says this. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? And the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, aren't his sisters right here with us? And they took offense at him. 
So get the picture here. They sit, they listen, Jesus talks, and they say, man, that's incredible. That is amazing. And they are wowed by everything he says until someone says, hey, isn't, isn't that Jesus? Isn't that Jesus that we've been knowing for years? Isn't that Jesus who grew up here? Isn't that Jesus that we saw when he was just this high playing with the other kids? I remember Jesus. I would see him all the time playing with the other kids. He'd come into my house. I remember Jesus would come in. I'd pat him on the head and say, Jesus, you're such a good little boy. In fact, really good. <laughs> Exceptionally good. Oh, you're, in fact, hang out with my kid. He needs some help. He needs to improve his behavior. Yeah, come on over anytime. You know, isn't this Jesus that joined his dad's shop as an apprentice and learned how to be a carpenter? Isn't this Jesus who grew up and he helped his dad? Isn't this the Jesus that we have known forever? And they go from being amazed and wowed by Jesus to being offended by him. Who are you, Jesus, that we've known forever to say these things? To think that you can teach us anything. And look how the story continues. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. He could not, not do any miracles there, except lay hands on a few sick people and heal them. Then notice verse 6. He was amazed... At their lack of faith. Again, if you don't have an issue with writing in your Bible, underline that. He was amazed at their lack of faith. And what did that do? Notice verse 5. It's one of the saddest verses in the New Testament. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. In other words, because of their lack of faith and their offense at Jesus, Jesus did nothing in their hometown except a few miracles. And the way this text reads, I'm convinced all of that happened before he was in the synagogue teaching and they took offense at Jesus. He did a few miracles. He healed a few people. He went and taught. They heard him teach. Wow, that's amazing. Wait, that's Jesus. They were offended. And he said, you have no faith. I am amazed at your lack of faith. And Jesus did nothing further there in their hometown. I want you to contrast these two stories for just a moment. The centurion, this Roman official, this non-Jewish, not the people of God uh, individual, has this faith that is so incredible that Jesus is amazed by it. Then Jesus goes to his hometown where all the church people were. Where all the Jewish, good, synagogue-going citizens gathered. And they saw that it was Jesus whom they had been knowing forever. And they amazed Jesus with their lack of faith. What's the difference in these two groups? Here's what it is. You notice what I said earlier about the Roman official. There were two things that he noticed about Jesus and himself. One was he knew that he was not righteous. This Roman official very much understood his own sin, his own unrighteousness, and the fact that Jesus was incredibly holy and righteous, so much so that he did not feel worthy to have Jesus come into his own home. That's number one. 
Number two, he recognized the power and the authority of Jesus. So much so that he said, you don't even have to come to my home. All you have to do is give the word and you can heal my servant. Notice the contrast between that and those individuals in the synagogue. Number one, they didn't think much about the righteousness and the power and the authority of Jesus. They didn't think much about him at all. This is just Jesus, this one that we've been knowing our entire lives. Secondly, they thought fairly highly of themselves. What is the key to having strong faith? It is a right, accurate picture of who we are and who Jesus is. And the better picture we have, the more that we are able to grow in our faith. And listen to me, the more we grow in our faith, the more Jesus is able to do in our lives. There may be some of you here today, and you're fairly new to church. Maybe the pandemic has sparked something in you. You're trying to figure things out. You're new to to worship and church and the Bible. And as I explain the scriptures, you're like, man, I I didn't even know there was a Matthew, Mark, and a Luke. And you're, you're trying to figure it all out. And in your mind, you're thinking this, I don't know if I'm worthy enough to be a part of church, to be accepted by God. I don't know if I'm good enough to fit in, to be accepted, to, to be a part of what God is doing, to, to be a follower of Christ. If that is your attitude, then you are in a great place. Here's the question I have for you. Are you hungry for Jesus? Are you hungry for Him to do something in your life? Are you hungry for worship and reading the Bible? That is the key. More than anything else, more than how many years you've been in church, more than what kind of citizen you are, more than morals, more than all of those things. Here's the question. Are you hungry for Jesus? And if that is the case, you are in the perfect place for your faith to grow. Over the next several weeks, that's exactly what we're going to talk, exactly what we're going to talk about. What can you do? What can I do to intentionally put myself in a place where I can grow in my faith? What are the things that I can do to make sure that I'm in a place where God can grow my faith in Him? And when I grow my faith from a 4 to a 5 or a 5 to a 6 or 7 to an 8, when I do that, that is when God is able to do much more in my life. It's time to push play. It's time to get off pause and to reconnect with our faith, with God, with church, and with those things that can grow us closer to Him.